Our text today will be in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. I have had the um, privilege, the high honor of being able to um, preach through the passion of our Lord Jesus the last few weeks, and this morning um, that narrative will be coming to a close as Christ yields up His Spirit to God the Father as an offering for sin. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. These are the words of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These are the words of God. Church, you may be seated. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Holy Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with hearts full of gratitude and joy as we meditate on this text. We are humbled that Christ came suffered and died, not for good, lovable people, but for his enemies, for vile, wretched sinners, that he chose to enter into this creation, to take upon himself our nature. Lord, that he suffered, that he died, that He shed His precious blood to save us so that we could be adopted as Your children. That is why we are here this morning to celebrate Christ 
to celebrate His resurrection, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to exalt His name together as those who have been united to Him, who share in all of the blessings of the new covenant that has been made in His blood. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this church that you have allowed us to assemble on this Lord's Day morning as a temple of your Holy Spirit to offer up sacrifices not of blood, not sacrifices to atone for our sins, but sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise for the one who did give a sacrifice for our sins. Oh, Father, we love the church. We love the worship service. We pray that you would continue to help us as we continue in this holy assembly and that it would be pleasing to you. Holy Father, for the assembly of saints at Bristol Baptist Church, we think of them this morning here in Ash County. We lift them up to you. We ask that their worship would be pleasing to you and that they would be an encouragement a blessing to one another. Holy Father, we pray for Mary, our sister Sarah's mother. We are grateful that you have had mercy on her such that she has been able to leave the hospital and has gone back home. But Father, we know that she is still very weak. And we pray that you would please Show your kindness to her in allowing her to continue to build up her strength. Lord, that you would use common means through medicine, um, doctors to help her. But Father, also we know that um, you are the great physician. We know that you are able to heal her. And so Father, we pray that you would do that that you would help her to continue to recover, that you would help Sarah and all the rest of her family to help her to get better. And Father, that you would allow her even to come here um, in just a few days to witness um, the baptism of Colson. So Father, we ask for that kindness from you this morning. Father, we are grateful that... Um, over the last several years that you have seen fit to give many children to the members of our church, that you have blessed the wombs of many women in our congregation to be fruitful. And so, Lord, we remember Joelle and Leah this morning as they are both with child. We pray that you would help them to continue healthy through their pregnancies, that they would continue to the end of the term, and that they would both be able to deliver healthy babies, that we would be able to rejoice as they do bring forth precious new image bearers. And Father, that you would also help Jared and Tony to love their brides during this time. And Father, we are grateful as a church for these gifts that you're giving to their families and even to our wider church family as we just love seeing new babies here at the gathering. Father, we continue, of course, to remember Karina in Ukraine. And, oh God, while we do pray for her safety, as we pray for the safety of all the 
Ukrainian people and that you would bring this war to an end. Holy Father, our greatest concern is for Karina's spiritual state. We pray, O oh God, that you would use this terrible conflict as a means to draw Karina's mind to her own mortality. Father, that she is not going to live forever, that one day she is going to stand before your judgment seat, and if on that day she is not found in Christ, she will be condemned. Oh God, would you please have mercy upon her? Would you please give her a new heart that hates her sin and loves Christ? That she would repent and believe the gospel? Oh God, bring growth and life to those seeds that were planted by our brother Justin and our sister Leanne. We pray, O oh God, for all of the lost people throughout Ukraine, that you would do the same, that you would protect your people who were there, still serving you and worshiping you in the midst of this conflict. And Lord, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and by your spirit. Holy Father, we believe with all of our hearts what our Lord Jesus said, that you sanctify us through your word. And so we ask that by your spirit this morning, as your word is proclaimed from this pulpit, that you would transform all of us by your word, by your Holy Spirit, make us more like the man from heaven, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him this morning, Holy Father, and we lift up this prayer to you in his highly exalted name. Amen. Six hours. Six hours is a short time or a long time, depending on what we're talking about. Six hours could be a short shift at work. I'll get to leave a couple hours early. Or six hours could be a very long movie, a very long play. Or it could be a very long sermon. <laughs> six hours could be a short drive to the beach. It's not too bad, right? Going on vacation. Six hours would be a very long time waiting in line. What could you do if you were given six hours? What could you get done? What would you accomplish? Jesus, in his state of humiliation, was given about 33 years of life on this earth. And in those 33 years, there was never a moment when our Lord committed sin. Never even a millisecond that he had a wicked thought. Every minute was spent loving God and obeying his law with all his heart, all his soul, all his might. But at the end of those 33 years, there were six hours, six long, brutal, 
excruciating, agonizing hours. Six hours that the sinless one was treated by God as if he was a condemned sinner. Six hours that he suffered in his body and in his soul and experienced something that he had never known before. The feeling of being forsaken by the Father. What could you do if you were given six hours? What might you accomplish? Jesus in six hours suffered unspeakably and accomplished the salvation of all who trust in Him by paying the price that would have taken us an eternity in hell to pay. Jesus suffered all of those torments in those six long brutal hours upon the cross. He was hung on that cursed Roman cross at 9 o'clock a.m. As we pick up in the narrative this morning, in verse 33, it is 12 o'clock noon. By this point, Jesus had been enduring this most horrendous of executions for about three hours. Read verse 33 with me again. Where Mark writes, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the scriptures, darkness is a symbol of sin and of the judgment of God upon sin and sinners. Consider Jeremiah 4, 28. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Also in Amos 8, 9 we read, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's a consistent picture that the Bible draws upon to illustrate wickedness and God bringing justice to bear upon those who perform wickedness. Remember, it was the Egyptians who were afflicted with the plague of darkness while the Israelites dwelt in light during the days of Moses. Further, Satan's realm is called what? The kingdom of darkness. In the case of darkness covering the land as Jesus suffered, that was not a natural phenomenon. It wasn't a solar eclipse. It was a supernatural sign from God powerfully displaying His wrath. Wrath upon the unbelieving Jews and the Romans who were killing the author of life. There's no doubt about that. But I believe more significantly, and we must remember that God was pouring out upon Christ all the wrath due for your sins, beloved, for my sins. Christ had made himself a sin offering, and he was receiving in himself the penalty that God's justice demanded. 
the darkness that should have covered the skies as we answered to God for our sins instead found its place over the Son of God, our substitute. Christ, by bearing the weight of our transgressions upon his shoulders, was paying the price to reverse the curse. The curse brought upon us. The curse brought upon all creation when Adam disobeyed his good creator by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One man of God has observed that the first Adam disobeyed God at a tree, while the last Adam obeyed God upon a tree. The first Adam brought death to all his people at a tree. Christ brings life to all his people upon a tree. Adam's failure to keep the covenant of works brought the old creation under condemnation. But the last Adam, by his faithfulness and his perfection, brings about glorious new creation. And as we all know very well, in Genesis 1, at the dawn of the old creation, what do we read? That darkness was over the face of the deep as the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And just as at the beginning of the old creation, that there was darkness over the face of the deep, here as Christ is preparing to inaugurate the new creation, darkness covers the face of the land. That glorious new creation will be consummate when he returns and he reunites heaven and earth. And yet it is here now in some senses as well. Paul tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He also teaches us that God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are not engulfed in darkness, beloved, not any longer. We live every day in the light of Christ. He himself is the light that the darkness of sin could not put out and never will put out. He has brought us out of darkness, the darkness in which we were blinded, in which we were bound, wallowing in the filth of our sins. He has broken off our chains. He has given us new hearts and made us partakers of him in this blessed covenant of grace, the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, if this morning you are struggling with a particular sin and you have found Satan whispering in your ear that you'll never be able to conquer it and you should just give up, might as well just give in, well, I can tell you this morning confidently that that is a lie. 
You are new creations in Christ. Christ's spirit dwells in you. Satan is not your master. Christ is your master and what a kind and wonderful master he is. You are not a slave to sin any longer, beloved. Christ has enabled you to say no to your flesh. He is in the process of sanctifying you. He promises that he will complete that work. And we have confidence that he will. Every day we have confidence because we are living in his light continually. And Paul reminds us, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This is how, beloved, we recognize those who belong to God, those who walk in the light as he is in the light. Christians sin. Don't misunderstand me. But Christians repent of sin. Christians don't live lifestyles of sin. And if you're living in sin this morning, friend, you should have no confidence that you are a Christian. Christ's light changes us. It transforms us. It makes us more like Him as we mature, as we follow Him. But all of that is only possible Because he underwent our punishment for us, suffering under the darkened skies of God's wrath. And who are we? Isaiah describes us as the people who have walked in darkness, who have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, upon them, upon us, light has shone but to procure all these great blessings for God's people, for the elect. We will never really know how excruciating that was for Jesus. We can't fully comprehend what he was going through and what he felt as he suffered in our place. But we do know that he suffered more than we ever have. He has suffered more than we or any other man or woman ever will. And as he suffered upon the cross, among his last words were what we read in verse 34. So look there with me. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, before we proceed further, I am compelled to make a few clarifying statements. There is not a division in the Trinity as Jesus makes that cry from the cross. The Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in the same relationship with one another that they have been throughout all eternity. Further, the Father didn't stop loving the Son, nor did the substance of God somehow become disrupted. No. 
Let us also remember that upon the cross, on that momentous day outside the city, Jesus did not cease being holy and he did not cease being God in the person of Christ as we confess with all the Orthodox Christians for two millennia in his person, a full human nature and a full divine nature are inseparably joined together, but not mixed together. Jesus is not suffering in his divinity on the cross, but in his human nature, he is in agony. He is in unspeakable sorrows. In his humanity, he is undergoing the worst thing imaginable. And Joel Beakey has rightly observed that Jesus underwent the torments of hell in his broken body and in his soul, all while being abandoned by his disciples. Consider dear believers, that in his incarnation, Jesus had always experienced perfect and deep fellowship with the Father. In his humanity, he knew nothing of broken communion with God. Jesus had always done the Father's will. We have seen how much as we have just read Mark's gospel alone, let alone when we read the other gospels, how much he loved spending time with the Father. Getting up early in the morning simply so he could go off by himself to pray. The Bible says that righteous Enoch walked with God. And that's true, of course. But Jesus walked with God perfectly. He did what Enoch did times infinity, if you will. He knew no sin, but now for the first time in his life, he is forsaken by his father. With all of our guilt, every wicked deed we have ever done, Every sinful thought you have ever had being imputed to him, Christ treated him as if he was you. As if he was us. Our confession of faith says that God is neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein. Can you imagine for a perfectly holy and righteous man. What a terrible experience that must have been for Jesus to face, that the Father could have no fellowship with Him as He bore our sins. We must acknowledge that this will always be something of a mystery to us. What exactly Jesus experienced on the cross But I believe, as one man of God has talked about in the past, he must have felt utterly alone. The sorrow that filled his soul, that pain, must have been overwhelming. And I love the way Sam Waldron has said it, that Jesus was bereft of God's smile upon him so that we would never have to be 
bereft of God's smile upon us. In other words, our blessed Lord Jesus knows something, has experienced something that we as believers will never know. He knows what it means to drink God's wrath for sin. We will never know what that feels like, but He does. He experienced abandonment so that you could be adopted. But there's another important point we must address here. Jesus is not just crying out in the midst of His pain, though He is doing that. He is also quoting Scripture. The words uttered by Christ from the cross with the same words that his father, King David, cried out to God. And we find those words in Psalm 22. And so, if our Lord Jesus is quoting this psalm at the deepest point of his passion on the cross, I think it only makes sense for us to read it together. So please, turn there with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform because those who fear him, before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Psalm 22 I trust we all can see, is quite clearly a messianic psalm that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Psalm 22 is a cry made to God in the midst of sorrow and anguish, and yet it is filled with hope and faith. It is a lament made as God feels far away while still trusting that he hears and that he will vindicate his servant and save his people. Remember, beloved, that Jesus upon the cross is fulfilling the covenant of redemption, that blessed covenant made between the persons of the Trinity regarding our salvation. This was the plan from eternity past that God had made to glorify Himself. The Father promised the Son a reward for His obedience. He promised that He would exalt Him and give Him a people for His own possession his offspring. Verse 22 of Psalm 22 is quoted by the writer to the Hebrews in this vein. Read it again with me. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. We are those brothers. Jesus was looking ahead to this 
as he hung on the cross. We are a gift from the Father to the Son, a people to praise him for the great redemption that he purchased for us. By taking on our nature, the Son of God became the new Adam, the head of a new humanity that will worship and enjoy Him forever. Hebrews 12.2 says that Christ, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. Jesus never stopped loving the Father. He never lost hope in God. Even out of his heartache and his anguish as the Father turned his face away in the midst of his agony and his deep suffering as his sorrows reached their height. He was faithful and trusted his Father in heaven. Believer, do you ever feel like your life is meaningless? Do you ever wonder what your purpose is? Do you cry out to God and feel as if he's forgotten about you? Brothers and sisters, if you ever struggle with those feelings, hear me this morning tell you that your life is full of meaning. Jesus Christ purchased you so that you could be with him forever, beholding his glory. Jesus Christ died so that he could put his spirit within you so that in this life you could walk with him, have fellowship with him, and honor his name before others. What's your purpose, dear one? Your purpose is to worship and enjoy Jesus. You want to know what the meaning of life is? There it is. It's to glorify Christ. You belong to Christ. Look at what Christ endured for you. Every moment of every day, Christ is interceding for you. Christ is praying for you, watching over you. His rod and his staff comfort you. Oh, believer, when you consider those things, I promise that it will give you hope when you are downcast, when you are lonely, or when the kids are screaming, or when your shift at work is miserable, or when it feels like life is just collapsing all around you, you can remember who you are by grace in Christ, seated with Him in heavenly places. You can remember what you are called to in the next life. 
One man of God reminds us that having an eternal perspective in everyday life raises our thoughts higher and makes everything that we do so much more meaningful when we do it as unto the Lord. When things are bleak, when you are suffering, cry out to God as Christ cried out to God. Even as He was being crushed by God for our sins, it was to Him that He called. Where else would He call? Would that we, brothers and sisters, echo that call when our lives are filled with heartache and difficulty. In Psalm 77, the psalmist says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Beloved, He is your only refuge in the day of trouble. So don't look elsewhere for your strength. Not to yourself, not to worldly things, not even to other godly people. Only the Lord will be able to uphold you through trials and temptations. And furthermore, He is delighted when His children cry out to Him in faith. The cry of Jesus from the cross was one of anguish and of faith. But that cry was sorely misunderstood, as all of Christ's words had been, by the crowds surrounding the cross. So now flip back to Mark 15 and read verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Perhaps you're wondering, what is with all this Elijah talk anyway? Like, where did that even come from? Well, more than likely, the reason was for the similarity between the name Elijah and Jesus' cry of Eloi from the cross. The crowd probably misunderstood, misheard his words as he hung above them. The wine given to Jesus was given to preserve his life a little longer. And it's kind of hard for us to know whether that was given to him out of pity out of compassion, or just a desire to make his suffering last a little longer so they could continue this sick game, this mockery of him. And they wonder aloud if Elijah will come to take Jesus off the cross. But don't we know as Christians that Elijah had already come in relation to the ministry of Jesus? In fact, we read about it all the way back over two years ago now in Mark chapter 1 and also in chapter 9 where Mark um, writes of Jesus teaching his disciples, Elijah does come first to restore all things. 
And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We know, don't we, that that man, Elijah, that Jesus was speaking of, was his own cousin, John the Baptist. He was the one of whom Malachi had prophesied. The Jews had long associated the coming of the Messiah with the prophet Elijah. The prophet Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He meaning John the Baptist, was Christ's forerunner. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, preaching repentance, preparing the people for God himself to arrive on the scene. He was a servant pointing away from himself and to the Messiah. He says that he must increase, I must increase decrease. He wasn't the reincarnation of Elijah. Rather, he was sent with the same mission as Elijah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He functioned in a similar way as Elijah in God's plan of redemption, the plan of Christ coming into the world. Now, that was a unique calling that John the Baptist was given. But don't we have a similar command as we are commanded to point our friends and our family to Christ? To preach the gospel and to tell everyone to make straight the way of the Lord as we know He is coming back to judge the living and the dead? Are we not called to go out and to proclaim that message? Are we not called to live a life like John the Baptist that's not selfish? It's not about ourselves, it's not about our own kingdom, but about Christ and Christ's kingdom. The king is returning. We're called to be ready for his return. We're called to help one another to be ready. I believe, church, that there is much we can learn from the prophet who was called to assume Elijah's mantle and prepare the way for Jesus. And Elijah himself even we know, was a man preaching repentance to people who, frankly, did not want to hear it. He was a thorn in the side to Ahab and to all the wicked, unregenerate people in Israel, but he kept preaching, didn't he? Both John and Elijah cared far more about what the Lord thought of them than what men thought of them. The men that we see surrounding Jesus outside the city, their minds were filled with darkness, confusion, and delusion. What's so very interesting about this whole scene that we read about here is that the crowd muses that maybe Elijah will come and save Jesus. 
when in reality, Jesus is remaining on the cross to pay for the sins of Elijah. That holy prophet of old was a righteous man, we know that. But he wasn't perfect. He needed atonement made for his sins. That was what Christ was accomplishing. So to put it another way, Jesus didn't need Elijah to save him. Elijah needed Jesus to save him. That's what Christ was doing. Elijah needed that salvation. So did John the Baptist. So did Moses. So did Abraham. So did Paul. And so do all of us. The cross truly does look foolish to the world. We must understand that. It's a sign of contradiction, but it's glorious. The power of God unto salvation, because upon it, Jesus Christ endured our punishment and gave a pure offering to God the Father. Read verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And with one final cry, one final breath, the author of life hung his head and died. In the famous words of the King James Version, he gave up the ghost. He offered up his life to his Father as a pure, spotless, unblemished sacrifice. It was finished. Why did Jesus have to die? That's a question that's been asked by many people throughout the centuries. Couldn't God have just saved us without crushing His only begotten Son in this way? Well, to answer that question, we must understand the holiness of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the very definition of goodness. Our God cannot simply sweep sin under the rug and pretend it never happened. No, our God is just and He requires satisfaction. He requires that atonement be made. If He just overlooked wickedness, He wouldn't be just. Sin offends him. He hates it. He can have no part in it. And sin must be punished. Sin will be punished. If there were to be any hope for us, church, we needed two things. First of all, we needed righteousness. We needed a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because God requires perfect obedience to His law. And not just outward obedience. He requires purity in all of our thoughts, 
and in all the attitudes of our hearts. And for nigh 33 years, Jesus lived a perfect life in submission to the Father, never once giving in to temptation. Jesus was the man that Adam failed to be. We needed that righteousness. We need to be clothed with that righteousness. But next, we also needed a sacrifice to be made on our behalf. This is what the old covenant taught the people of God. Without the shedding of blood, the writer to the Hebrews tells us there can be no forgiveness of sins. We needed atonement and redemption. And so in his final hours of life, Jesus, with all of our sins imputed to him, satisfied the wrath of God so that we could have peace with God. And what was the result of Jesus offering up that sacrifice to the Father Simply put, it was awesome. Read verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What curtain is that? The curtain that separated the most holy place, what we sometimes call the holy of holies in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from all of the other courts of the temple. The place where God's presence was manifested in a special way as He covenantally dwelt with His people. Only the high priest could go in the most holy place. And even then, he couldn't do it whenever he wanted he could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he couldn't go in unless he had the blood of the sacrifices to make satisfaction for Israel's sins. But as I just said, the high priest didn't do that and that was it. He had to continue doing it. He had to repeat it year after year after year after year. And then the high priest would die and the next high priest would have to do it year after year after year. These sacrifices couldn't truly remove sins. They couldn't perfect the worshipers. So they had to be repeated continually. But Jesus' sacrifice the one we have spent the last two weeks marveling at, it does purify and cleanse the conscience. And it never has to be repeated, brothers and sisters. Our great high priest has perfected us for all time. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The high priests of old could not do that, but Jesus did it. No more altars, no more animal sacrifices. All those things found their end and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
and as if to give us assurance of that blessed truth. God ripped that veil of separation right down the middle. And he now invites us to come into his presence with boldness in Jesus' name. In Christ, we may freely approach and worship Almighty God. You are his children. After Adam rebelled against the Lord, the way back into the Garden of Eden was guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword. The relationship between man and God had been cut off, it had been broken. And there are two men of God, Jim Hamilton and Sam Amadi, who have noted the connection between that picture, that guardian cherub with the flaming sword, a connection between that and Exodus 26.31, where God is commanding Moses to make this temple curtain. And he says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Why do you think that was? What is the significance of that? It was a reminder to Israel of how our sin separates us from communion with God. It reminded Israel of what was lost to us in the fall of man. But that curtain being torn reminds us of what Christ has gained for us for restoring our relationship to God. It reminds us that we have confident access to God through our faith in Him and that at the throne of God, we don't find condemnation. We find grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Dear believers, please, I implore you, do not take that access that you have to God's throne lightly. It is the greatest privilege in the universe to have communion with your Creator. Jesus died so that you could be reconciled to God. That was the price of your redemption. You're in covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has made us a kingdom of priests. We have gathered together this Sunday morning here in Ash County, North Carolina, gathered together to, as a church, worship our great God through our great high priest. Is that exciting to you? Does that amaze you that you have been given that privilege? Do you look forward to this gathering every week? Or church, has it become ordinary to you? Is it boring? Are there places you would rather be right now? What about personal prayer? Is it something that you want to do? Commune with the God you have access to, who invites you to come before Him and to cry out to Him? Or is it like a chore? 
Something you feel like you have to check off a box. What about praying together? Corporate meetings. Do you want to come together with brothers and sisters? Other people whom Christ has purchased? To go to the throne together and to share one another's burdens? Would you rather be doing something else? Brothers and sisters, do not let Satan steal the joy away from these gifts that Christ died to give you. They are precious things. We see how Christ treasured and delighted in spending time with the Father. Would that we, beloved, cultivate such a relationship with God enjoying our salvation, enjoying our reconciliation, that we can say that we are joyful and happy to be Christians. We want to go to church. We want to be with the brethren. We want to help one another. We want to study the scripture. We want to overcome our flesh. We know that the spirit will help us But we must not neglect the means of grace that He has given us in our lives. We must, by the Spirit's empowering, do what the writer to the Hebrews exhorts us to hold fast to our confession, to hold fast to it in every area of our life. There's nothing that we do that Jesus is not our Lord and Master. We can take joy that every day that we abide under God's pleasure, that we abide under His love, that we are joined, united to the Beloved One, all because of that curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom. Hold fast to that confession, dear believer. And as our passage continues, it actually contains within it what, at least in part, our confession of faith that we proclaim to the world and to one another what it is. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark reaches something of a climax here in verse 39, as some uh, faithful men who have commented on this gospel have noted. There's something of bookends that in chapter 1, verse 1, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that throughout Mark, he has shown us undisputable proofs, beautiful stories and teachings and displays of miracles that Jesus is the Son of God. And here at the end, a Roman centurion confesses that he is indeed the Son of God. Theologians have observed that this is the conclusion that Mark desires and exhorts all his readers to come to. What are we to make of this centurion's words? Well, certainly, I think the supernatural um, events and the signs that accompanied Jesus' death upon the cross probably had something to do with the centurion making this confession. 
But more so than even any of those things, notice that Mark draws attention to it was the way in which he died that caused the centurion to say this. Jesus' death was different from the countless other executions that this soldier of Rome had probably witnessed. Jesus died with purpose, dignity, and righteousness, calling upon God even to the end. After all we have read of him enduring, we are reminded once again, as our pastor Scott has reminded us, that Jesus was not a victim. His life was not taken from him. He voluntarily laid it down. It was a voluntary sacrifice, an act of love unlike any other. And something about that moved this pagan soldier to proclaim, this man really was who he said he was. I believe it's safe to assume that that realization was a gut punch to this centurion. That he probably felt overwhelmed, stricken by guilt for his involvement in Jesus' murder. But here's the beauty of the cross. Jesus' death on that cross made it possible for that centurion who participated in it to be forgiven. You want to talk about mind being blown? There's something that will do it. Did that centurion become a Christian? We aren't sure. But we do know that if he repented and believed, Jesus would have forgiven him for his role in the crucifixion and for all his other sins. And the same goes for you, friend. Truly, this man was the Son of God. He is the Son of God the Savior of the world who will pardon all your sins if you turn away from them and trust in Him. You're not too wicked. You're not beyond the stretch of His mercy. All people are under the curse of the law, and you can't save yourself. Paul teaches us, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Again, we see God's standard of perfection. But what does Paul go on to say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith.
Jews and Gentiles, boys and girls, men and women are offered complete forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as our passage ends, Mark writes about a few of Jesus' faithful women followers. He says there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Besides John the Apostle, all of Jesus' disciples, they behaved cowardly. They abandoned him. They fled. But we see these godly women who stayed with grief-stricken hearts, probably with tears in their eyes rolling down their cheeks. They watched their rabbi undeservedly die a criminal's death. Mark specifically mentions three women. Mary Magdalene, who we know would have been unspeakably grateful to Christ for the uh, miracle that he had performed in her life of uh, casting out seven demons that had been tormenting her. James and Joseph's mother, and Salome, who was the mother of James and the beloved Apostle John. These sisters had attended to Jesus' needs as he went about his ministry in Galilee, probably making meals and other practical things like that. We remember Jesus was truly a man and he had those needs. He needed people to help him as he went about his um, work, going about preaching from town to town. We see that in a society that largely looked down upon women or mistreated women, Jesus clearly respected them as image bearers of God. I think that we as men should soberly consider how our Lord and Master related to women. And I think, sisters, that you should be encouraged when you consider that you have the same place in Christ as His men disciples do. That you have the same salvation, you are loved the same way. And as John Piper has remarked before, what's amazing for us to consider is that Jesus had all these women around him, and yet he never sinned against any of them. Never gave a lustful glance at one of them. He was always perfectly pure in his conduct. And they always knew that when they were with him, they were safe. Men and women both bear the image of God. And though we have different roles that we are given, we are not the same. Paul does teach us that there is no male or female in Christ, that we are all one in Christ, that we all partake of the same Christ and have the same worth, the same dignity. Oh, how devastated these women must have felt witnessing what they had seen. But while there may have been pain in the night, 
joy comes in the morning. And that glorious Sunday morning was coming. Pastor Scott will preach about that in a couple of short weeks when their sorrow would be turned into intense gladness. But as we prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I would like to address two groups. First, I would like to speak to those of you who are beginning perhaps to feel too comfortable with your sin. Are you starting to make allowances for it? Are you giving it little places in your life where you let it fester? Are you hiding it? Are you making excuses for it to yourself? Are you making excuses for it to other people? Do not go down that dangerous road. Do not abuse grace. Do not decide that you will sin, that grace may abound. If you hear proclamations of the gospel and you use those in your head to justify indulging in sin, you must, friend, examine yourself to see if you truly are in the faith. Because Jesus tells us that if we love him, we will show that we love him by what? Keeping his commandments. If there's a particular sin you're dealing with, that you're having difficulty killing, look to the cross. Behold what your sins did to the Lord Jesus. See what they cost him. If you want to know how much God despises sin, look and see the kind of gruesome death Jesus had to undergo, having to undergo upon the cross that feeling of forsakenness and abandonment from his father. That's how much God hates sins. So how could you possibly Enjoy something that God hates so much. How could you dare to love something that the Lord detests? How could you delight in the very things that killed the Lord Jesus? We aren't saved so that we can sin. We are saved from sin. But finally a word to the struggling Christian, to the believer who perhaps is struggling with assurance of salvation, or the believer who feels broken and guilty over sin and wants to see it die. Or perhaps you struggle that you don't feel like you really are loved by God. Look to the cross and behold God's love for you. Look and see justice satisfied. Be comforted, dear one, that there's not a drop of wrath left for you to drink. Jesus drank it all. The record of your sins 
sins that you have repented of, but perhaps are still haunting your memory this morning. They were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. He took your punishment. He paid your debt in full. Now, did you deserve that pardon? No, you sure didn't. And neither did I. That's why it's called grace. Look to the cross. And remember that your standing before God is not determined by how good you're doing, but on what Jesus did. Look to the cross and be encouraged that God isn't finished with you. And as you desire to grow in holiness... His Spirit will equip you to do so if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He is at work, beloved. His beloved Son took your punishment so that He could adopt you as a son, adopt you as a daughter. Look to the cross and remember that Jesus wants you to see Him. Jesus wants you to be with him. He died to make you his own possession. And even in the darkest depths of his sorrow upon the cross, he loved you. That is the basis of your standing with God, of your peace with God. We have hope. We have peace because of the spotless Lamb of God who was slain for us. John saw that Lamb in heaven, but oh, he wasn't a dead Lamb. The Lamb was slain, but he is alive today. So as we close, please turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a golden harp and golden bowls full of incense 
which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What other response can we have to the Lamb of God, church, than to bow down in worship before Him in all of His power and of His grace? The blood that He shed speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood cries out that we are justified, that we are are righteous, that our sins will not damn us. That is what His blood, the blood of our Lamb who has been slain, has accomplished for us. The Old Testament sacrifices, those lambs, the blood of goats and bulls, could never truly remove sins. But because this Lamb that we have read about this innocent, spotless lamb who was led to the slaughter. We who have been washed in his blood and look to him as today he stands triumphantly in heaven. We can live our lives, go to sleep tonight with joy that we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, may we never tire of hearing the gospel of our salvation. May we never think about the cross meditate upon the sacrifice of Christ. May we never think about what He has done for us and not be moved to gratitude to Him. Father, help us to live lives enjoying our peace with You. To live lives in Your light with Christ's rod and staff comforting us, watching over us,
Holy Father, for the atonement for all of the wicked things that all of us in this room can no doubt remember that we have done. We thank you that in the new covenant you remember our sins no more because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb who was slain. We thank you that that Lamb is not dead, but that that He is standing in victory in heaven. Help us to look to Him every day, to love Him evermore as we are comforted by the knowledge that He loves us more than we can even imagine. Thank you, Holy Father, for Christ and for His work on the cross. And we offer this up to you in His name. Amen.